Hey listener, this is Trey Terpak from the Ecumenical Office of the Reformed Church in America. Thanks for listening to our podcast, What Unites, of the Christian Unity Project. In this podcast, we're introducing you to some of the basics of ecumenical action here in the RCA. And in today's episode, we'll be hearing from Andy Bassardi, who works in the Michigan Regional Center in Grand Rapids as the coordinator for equipping thriving congregations. He'll be discussing what unites congregations both internally and externally. yourself for me. Trey, hi, I'm Andy Bassardi. I'm the coordinator for equipping thriving congregations here in the Reformed Church in America. I work in the areas of congregational health and leadership development, focusing mostly on the uh, spiritual and vocational health of leaders so that they can be effective servants of their of their churches and other kinds of communities. That's awesome. As you know, we're talking about what unites Mm-hmm. And you've got some ideas about that regarding congregations. Yeah, so I am, among many things, a complete nerd as it relates <laughs> to all things science. I am really interested in the sciences. I thought I was going to be a scientist until I was told I wasn't going to invent time travel. And then I kind of gave up that quest and went to seminary instead. And the um, the work that I've done is largely informed by science. The art of leadership and neurobiology and all these things are really informing me as I do my work. And as I think about the word thriving, because my ministry is the thriving leaders, thriving churches. Mm. I'm the coordinator for equipping thriving congregations. That word thriving is really important. And to me, that word is a biological term. It's a word that locates itself in um, the natural world. I think of thriving ecosystems or not thriving ecosystems. And when you think of something that's thriving, you think of, of everything works well together. Right. Um, there's, um, there isn't one kind of plant that overcomes another. Like, my, for example, my landscaping is not thriving unless you are weeds. Um, <laughs> if you are crabgrass or something else, you are in a thriving atmosphere. If you are the flowers that are planted there, it is less thriving. And so I, I put more work in than I ought to to try to keep that to be a thriving and balanced ecosystem. Um, I used to live in a, an area that was in the dunes, uh, sand dunes in Michigan, and we would go pull garlic mustard all the time because if you have too much of it, it has, a, it has an undue effect on the ecosystem and makes mm. it not thriving anymore. Yeah. And so when I think of the word thriving in terms of a congregation, I think that unity is... Um, absolutely critical. Mm. Unity or union is at the heart of salvation, at the heart of the gospel, is that, you know, that um, Hosea language, they that were not a people are now a people. Yeah. Those who did not belong or were not loved are now deeply loved and deeply belong. That kind of transformation is at the heart of the gospel. And therefore, because it's at the heart of the gospel, it's at the heart of what it means to be the church. And so union and unity, therefore, is deeply at the heart of the gospel, deeply at what it means to be the church. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus goes to the, the garden to pray, prays for the, um, 
the church that will be, he prays that the same union he experiences with God the creator that we would experience with God and with one another. Mm. And that's just, that's just mystical. That's something that we could fall into for the rest of our lives. But that union is at the heart of what it means to be church. Mm. Um, and the, the union that forms there is therefore an ecosystem, a series mm. of relationships that create a kind of thriving institution. And so um, to me, unity is at the heart of what it means to be a thriving congregation or a thriving church. Because one of the things that exists in the New Testament that sometimes we don't appreciate is that there wasn't a Corinthian church. Right. Like in, in terms of like one building with, it wasn't first church of Corinth that all met on Sunday morning. Like there was the traditional service that only did the Psalms and there was the new service, you know, contemporary service in the afternoon that sang some of like the Philippians hymns. Right. Like there wasn't, that wasn't a thing. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Paul was writing to clusters of people that were interrelating with one another in the same way that we would see an ecosystem um, or the same way we consider the cells in our body. In fact, he goes to that very same group of churches and says, you are a body, right? There's this interconnected functioning that exists within congregations and between congregations. It's that very same mystery that Jesus talks about when in the Gospel of Luke, he says, don't let anyone tell you, here's where the kingdom is, or here's where the kingdom is. Mm. He says, the kingdom of God is, and then he uses this word that could be translated within you, mm. and it could be translated between you. Juicy. Both. Even better. Less either or, more both and... I think that gets that's at the heart of union, unity and union too, is we get less either or, a little more both and. The kingdom of God is completely contained within me. That if I was disconnected from all other all other followers of Jesus on the planet, I would have all I need to be beloved of God. Hmm. And there is something deeply, again to use the word mystical. There's something bright. There's something beautiful. There's something good about this connection between me and others and us and others that that tears down the walls as paul talks about frequently that would normally divide and creates this new united people this new ecosystem um, driven by the spirit not by the limitations or what paul calls the flesh that's that's an awesome vision one of the things we were trying to do here in, in the ecumenical office and in the RCA is to cultivate leaders mm -hmm. and cultivate leadership not only amongst folks who may seem to be the leaders of a congregation, an organization, or whatever, but also leaders in all areas of life. And so do you have some ideas about cultivating leadership? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, there's this really um, kind of key component for me of what it means to cultivate leadership and that is that for me a leader is primarily someone who is in tune with the voice of God and helps mm. others to be in tune with the voice of God mm. that is the leaders of the church of today yesterday and tomorrow are going to be people who not only tell the story of God but they also listen for the story of God mm. And that unity, as opposed to uniformity, happens when leaders are 
collaborating, are creating opportunities for listening, um, opportunities to make sure that no one is hidden, no one hides, and everyone has a chance to speak the truth and to add to this great pool of meaning that we call collective discernment, that, mm. uh, that all these voices are welcome and that it's not welcome at my table, but it's welcome at the various tables that exist, ultimately the table of Jesus, that leaders are the ones who are cultivating those stories. Uniformity is that leaders dictate the story. Mm. That a leader stands up and says, here's the story of what it means of God. Here's the story of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's the story of what it means to be a part of our church. The leader defines it, and you either get defined as in or out. Right. Whereas uh, unity is formed by the cultivation of story. And so yeah. we have um, the example that comes to us um, from, uh, from Lamentations, like where, where it seems the, the letter is letting various groups of people speak. Um, Soong Chan Ra wrote about this in Prophetic Lament, that the author of Lamentations is inviting the stories of women who have lost their children to the exile. And um, people whose stories are not recorded in the Book of the Kings, because it's talking about the high and the mighty. Lamentations brings it down to the grassroots level, which is why it's so painful. Mm. At the king level, they have the, the comfortable space of saying, like, this is what's happening, but I'm going to be fine. Right. But at the grassroots level, it's not fine. There are people mm. who are losing their families and losing their connection to one another, and they're telling the story. So leaders become the cultivators of story. Mm. and the tellers of story and the listeners for story. Yeah, so part of thriving congregations, unity, leadership in, in, in that space is collectively cultivating a narrative. Yeah, or a cluster of narratives mm. mm -hmm. that, we, that we allow, again, in this either-or world of either the narrative is true or untrue, um, which sometimes there's, there's absolutely the case where this narrative is, is true and this one's a lie. There's other times where the narratives are kind of clustered that, ever, that people get to share their story and there's tension between the story. Mm. That this moment was amazing and wonderful for this group of people and right. deeply painful and grievous for another group of people. Mm. And leaders of today are going to be the ones who elicit all of those stories. I don't believe we have unity unless everyone gets a chance to speak. Mm. We don't have unity unless every story gets told and every story gets honored. Without that, what we have is a, a gradient of unity. We have a partial unity, but the less stories get heard and the more stories get dictated, the more we move toward that uniformity place. Mm. And so leaders are, who are going to be doing the adaptive, creative, innovative work are going to be the ones who are searching for stories even searching for stories that bring up tension with their own. Right. And so the, these bring into, into all sorts of conversations in leadership. Um, some folks call it, call it privilege. Some folks um, you know, call, talk about margins or center. There's all these, this language for talking about it. But if leaders are not, if leaders who are typically centered folks are not, are not also looking and saying, who, have, who has been marginalized, and how does that story get brought into the center too? How does that story get elevated, amplified, told by the people who are living this story? Not me keep listening to your story and then telling it back to you, but actually having space where these stories can be amplified. 
that is ultimately what's going to bring unity. Sometimes that sounds really scary mm -hmm. in a congregation because folks think like if there's a disagreement, won't that produce conflict? Right. And won't conflict always produce something bad? Isn't conflict a bad thing? And I would say no, conflict is an uncomfortable thing. Even right. in my own body, I experience conflict when I run. Right. And I don't run often, but I experience conflict. I went <laughs> running the other day and I experienced <laughs> conflict with my legs. Yeah. Right? Yep. I experience conflict with my mind when I learn something new. I'm experiencing that tension. I experience conflict when I get to know a friend and we find places of divergence or we find mm -hmm. that we communicate differently or something like that. Conflict is an inherently creative act. Mm -hmm. But if it's handled in a way that's immature, mm -hmm. that, what, that thing that gets created is toxic. If we learn to handle those conflicts in, in ways that honor and promote the other, then what we begin to see is that the, the, the tension or the conflict we experience is, in, is immensely creative and right. beautiful. Um, we have a story like Paul and, and Barnabas who have this disagreement about this dude named Mark, yeah. right? And, and Paul says, you know, leave him. Barnabas says, no way, I would have left you. Mm. You know, I, 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 that's how I picture the story. Because right. Barnabas stuck up for Paul. I imagine Barnabas saying, I could have left you behind too. I'm not going to leave Mark behind. And mm -hmm. as tradition tells it, we have the first gospel, Mark, right. because of that. Huh. Um, because the, of that conflict. Meanwhile, Paul goes off with others and amazing things happen. And so cultivating leadership practices, it's about listening for stories. It's about telling stories. It's about um, holding the tension of stories so that you don't resolve it or fix it too quickly, but you can actually hold the tension at a level where everyone is, is kept, at a, uh, kept at safe from, mm. from harm yeah. from each other, uh, from being hurt by each other, but there's also enough discomfort in the tension that there's something creative that can happen as well. Some sense of transformation. Right. And unity, right. it sounds like it helps in, in holding together that mature process for Absolutely. catalyzing this creativity, this new narrative. Yes, unity is an incredibly dynamic reality. Hmm. I think oftentimes unity gets thought of as this like stasis, like we're one, like bricks yeah. in a building. Yeah. Whereas when I think of unity as it relates to thriving, I think of a biological process, I think of a adaptive process, I think of a dynamic process, hmm. where unity is constantly being negotiated for the sake of the common good which yeah. common good language we often ascribe to the political realm, but it comes to us from 1 Corinthians. <laughs> like, we're supposed to use yeah. our gifts for the common good. It's a right. dynamic reality. We're, right. we're constantly negotiating reality, and we're constantly negotiating unity. And a thriving congregation equips itself to do that. Right. It equips itself to have intense conversations, meaningful conversations. Uh, thriving congregations um, learn to question their own assumptions. Mm. And because the assumptions are what, what often happens in whether it's in my life or it's in the life of an organization or a church or whatever, when we have a, uh, when we don't question our own presumptions, assumptions, mental models, biases, when we're not relentlessly questioning those, mm -hmm. we are silencing part of the story yeah. every single time. And so 
I'm not a master at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I hold mastery of relentlessly interrogating my reality, mm. if relentlessly interrogating my hidden assumptions, as Dr. Cornell West would say, if I am relentlessly interrogating those realities and those assumptions, I'm creating more space in me to listen to someone else's story. Mm. And that therefore transforms me into the kind of person who wants to hear other stories and wants to hold the tension of other people's stories so that both valued by both valuing unity mm -hmm. and also valuing achieving unity one day mm. can happen. So much like the Belhar speaks of a gift and an obligation, unity as a gift and an obligation, unity both as a value that makes me want to hear your story. Right. And I want to hear your story so that we can achieve greater unity. Hmm. It becomes kind of this this right. non-vicious cycle, like, yeah. <laughs> like a, a flourishing cycle, a yeah. thriving cycle, one might say. Um, and so unity does those things. And in, the, in terms of deep relationship, messy conflict, and robust ecosystems of, of diverse stories. Mm. That's awesome. So what would be practices in your local community of faith that would help you along in unity and thriving and, and continuing on the way? Absolutely. So I am, I am deeply convinced of the practices of examine or examine and confession, repentance, reconciliation. Mm. I'm deeply, I'm yeah. deeply convinced that when Jesus said, if you come to worship and you realize you have something against your sister or brother, yeah. you ought to like leave the sacrifice behind, go handle that situation because whatever you bring to God will not be the same right if you don't if you don't handle that before you get to worship i, I think of those practices of reconciliation and um, i look at you know the prophets of amos you know like quit worshiping quit praising if you're not willing to tell the truth about the places of brokenness and even more important if you're not willing to hear the truth mm. like i can i one of the things I, I i get astounded by in my own confessional life is I love the confessional prayers that are written out for me right. because when they're poorly done, I love them because they let me off the hook. <laughs> but when they're well done, I have to say some stuff out loud that I might not be ready to say, that I'm mm. sorry about. I may, I may not be there yet, but, if I, but I say it out loud and all of a sudden, if, unless I just check out, right, that's an option. But if I want to engage worship completely with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, that makes me uncomfortable. Why does that make me uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. why, am I, why do I not want to say this out loud? Why am I not ready to confess this? I think confession is ultimately just truth-telling. Right. And we've got to be ready to tell the truth as the church. And we've got to be ready to tell the truth because in a dynamic unity reality, we are constantly breaking our bonds. We're constantly breaking them. If unity is static, then every time we break our bonds, it's like this shameful thing. But in a dynamic reality, every time we break our bonds, it's an opportunity for, for humility, confession, repentance, and ultimately reconciliation. And so we look for those courageously, even desiring to see those things that we wouldn't normally want to see. We want to see our blind spots checked. And so confession and reconciliation, I think, are immensely important. And it's one of the things that when I look at worship services, sometimes I see those aren't there. 
confession and repentance and reconciliation. They're kind of swept aside or, or given this kind of neutral, like, we're all sinners language, but doesn't name the ways in which we've sinned against one another and uh, what we've done and what we've left undone, to use the language of, of our liturgy. The other thing I think of uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of practices that confession and reconciliation open up is hospitality. Hmm. We absolutely need hospitality. I see this at the Lord's table and I see this at my dinner table, right? Like we, right. hospitality is, is Sunday through Sunday. It's every single day. It's a hospitality is a posture. It's everything from when someone comes into your church, how they're greeted to, um, to the services that get offered to give them some kind of experience to hospitality showing up in reverse because Jesus didn't have that many tables when he lived here on earth. He was at other people's tables and he was a gracious guest. And yeah. sometimes church, we're like, we're great at the hospitality if you arrive, which none of us are that great at it, but right. we're working on it. <laughs> but even more so, we need to learn to be a guest at other people's tables. Mm. And Jesus knew how to be a guest at the Pharisees' table, at the tax collector's table. Jesus was hanging out with the zealots at their table. Like Jesus just knew what to, how to be a guest. And when we're a guest, that posture of humility puts us in a place where we are more ready to be unified mm. because we're placed in, a, in an opportunity of saying, I need to receive from you, even if we don't see eye to eye, even if we um, are different from one another, I need something from you. I'm not fully me unless I know fully you. Yeah. And that, um, that kind of you know, attitude has been reflected from activists and pastors and mystics that span the, the, the centuries that we need one another in a really deep way. And so hospitality as a host, hospitality as a guest, mm -hmm. and, and a willingness and eagerness for confession, repentance, and reconciliation. Thank you. Any last words? Oh my goodness. I can't stress enough how important it is for us as church to see ourselves as interconnected cells, mm. not just within a denominational structure. That the denominational structure exists in a multiple ways for a variety of reasons, but beyond that, to see ourselves as interconnected cells in a city, to see ourselves as interconnected cells in neighborhoods, in nations, and across the world, we have so much to learn from one another if we adopt a, a humble posture and so humility is required for unity. And so I pray it for myself and I pray it for anyone who's listening today that we adopt the humility that's required to produce unity. Well, thank you, Andy. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. A special thanks again to Andy for that wonderful time. And I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. If you're at all interested in learning more about your congregation or your classes and how you can participate in ecumenical action, unity that's both internal and external, make sure to visit our website at www.rca.org. There you can learn about the formula of agreement, dual affiliated congregations or union or federated churches, 501c3 nonprofits. There's even a little bit about baptismal certificates. Thanks again for listening to this episode of What Unites of the Christian Unity Project. The peace of Christ be with you.